You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now go to our scripture reading, which is also the text for this morning's sermon. Psalm 24. Of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Beloved Congregation of Christ, royalty demands to be taken seriously. Just take the example of weddings in the royal family. It's been a number of years since there has been one, and I'm sure you can remember Look back, not just anyone can attend a royal wedding in person. Even if you want to go to the service where the wedding is taking place, you need to have an invitation. And when that royal bridal couple enters, it's always accompanied by an extraordinary measure of fanfare. So on an earthly level, just on the the horizontal, we recognize that there's something different about royalty, something that goes far beyond the everyday experiences of the the hoi polloi. If that's true with earthly royalty, how much more so with Yahweh, the King of glory. That's what this psalm, Psalm 24, is about. This psalm is about impressing us with God's transcendence. His glory that goes far beyond us. Our thoughts of God are often too small. And our grasp of His glory is too fleeting. This psalm comes to God's people in every age and place and reminds them, reminds us, that God is the mighty and majestic King of glory. We have three stanzas in this psalm, and you can see this reflected in our Bible translation and the way that it's set up. There's a bit of a space between each of the stanzas in the NIV. The first stanza consists of verses 1 and 2. Here David draws our attention to the sovereign rule of Yahweh, the King of glory. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I would ask you to take note that LORD here is in all capital letters. 
When we see that in the Old Testament, Lord with all capital letters, that means that this is Yahweh in Hebrew. God's personal name. The earth belongs to Yahweh. It is His personal possession. And not only the planet and everything on it, but also all who, who live on it. The living beings. Why? Because He created it all. Verse 2 sends our thoughts back to the first chapter of Genesis when it says, For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. See, first the waters were set in place in Genesis 1, and then God caused dry ground to appear. Right from the start of this psalm, God's people are reminded that God is a king unlike any other. Earthly kings may conquer a kingdom for themselves, but they never have and never never will create a kingdom for themselves out of nothing. This is only something that Yahweh has done. And His kingdom encompasses absolutely everyone and everything. He's not just a king in Israel, but a king over the entire globe. There isn't a square inch that doesn't belong to Him. And notice the way this challenges human thinking about God. Take the ancient world. In the ancient world, deities or gods were always local deities or local gods. There was never a thought that these local deities or gods were sovereign over the whole earth. Babylon's gods were for Babylon. Egypt's gods were for Egypt. The gods of the Philistines were for the Philistines. And so on. But here in Psalm 24, that whole notion is challenged. It's undermined. Yahweh is the King of glory over the entire earth. And this challenged ancient human thinking about God, but also challenges human thinking about God in our day. In our day, the thinking about God is often, at least in our culture, that this is a very personal matter. You have your ideas about God, and I have my ideas about God, and and who knows who's right. A couple of weeks ago, Vancouver Sun, there was an article about a minister in Ontario. This minister wrote a book arguing that people should get rid of talking about God altogether. Just stop talking about God. She feels that so-called God talk is divisive. That talking about God is not helpful for anybody. She believes that we would be better off talking about love and mercy and kindness. So today, instead of having Babylon's gods for Babylon, we've reduced it to the human, the individual level. John's God for John, Susan's God for Susan, and so forth. This psalm challenges that thinking. It does that by telling us that the earth and everything in it belongs to Yahweh. He is the king over all the earth. And as the king, he has royal prerogatives. He has rights. He has the right to demand obedience. He has the right to demand 
the acknowledgement of his rule. God is not just a king for Christians. He's the king over all. And so when we talk with unbelieving friends, neighbors, co-workers, whoever, let's be careful that we never give ground to this idea that there is no public objective truth about God. Don't ever give any ground to the idea that everything in the realm of religion is purely subjective, that it's individual. To be sure, we, we should be respectful of our unbelieving friends. But that doesn't mean we give in to their ways of thinking about these sorts of things. Well, the first stanza of this psalm challenges us on, on that level, but also on another one. We're reminded here that the earth belongs to Yahweh. Now, for the people of Israel, for whom this psalm was first written, that was realized in all the different commands that God gave with respect to the the land. For instance, in Leviticus 25, we find that the people were to let agricultural land lie fallow during the Sabbath year, once every seven years. The land was to have a rest. And as Christians, we also have the New Testament that informs our attitude to the earth and everything in it, the earth that belongs to Yahweh. We discover in Romans chapter 8 that the redemption of Christ also has something to do with the entire earth. Christ is concerned with delivering not only his people, but also his creation from what Romans 8 calls the bondage of corruption. And as believers who are united to Christ by faith, this psalm, combined with what we find elsewhere in Scripture, leads us to that important concept of stewardship. It all belongs to God, but it has been entrusted to us for our care and management. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of what that looks like, tell you how to build a composter or what have you, but I just ask you to note the basic principle. The earth and everything in it belongs to Yahweh. It is included in the redemptive work of Christ. Therefore, we are to manage it well. We are to take care of it. As we come now to the second stanza, beginning in verse 3, encounter a question. Before the sermon, we sang Psalm 15, and there a similar question is posed. In Psalm 15, the question is with respect to who can permanently live in God's presence, in his sanctuary, on his holy hill. Here the question is a little bit different. Who may ascend the hill of Yahweh and stand in the holy place? mentions the holy place. I think that bears some further reflection. What is that? The holy place. Well, the tabernacle and then later on also the temple consisted of three main portions. Starting from the outside, there were the inner courts. And there in the inner courts were, were two major features. First of all, there was the altar for burnt offerings. And then second of all, there was the bronze laver, which is a large tub-like object. 
Now, in these inner courts, any Israelite could enter. Any Israelite could come and bring an offering to Yahweh. Then there was a tent, or with the, the temple, a building in the center where you would find the other two portions. In the most restricted area was the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, as we find it in the NIV. Now, into that most holy place, only one person could enter, and only once per year. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and he could only do that on Yom Kippur, which is the the Day of Atonement. But then there was also a less restricted area in front of the Holy of Holies, and that was known as the Holy Place. Priests would enter there on a regular daily basis, but the regular Israelites, for them there was also a sign that said, no entrance. The holy place was only for the priests. There they would tend to the altar of incense, the table of shoebread, and to the golden lampstand. So now, when, when David asked this question of who may stand in Yahweh's holy place, if you were an Israelite, the answer you would expect to hear would be the Levitical priests. Of course, they're the ones who have been appointed by God to stand in the holy place and to serve Him there. But the answer of this psalm is something different, something surprising. Verse 4 says that admission to the holy place depends not on being a Levitical priest, but it depends on four things. First of all, one has to have clean hands. Now, that doesn't mean that your hands have been washed with soap and there's no dirt under your fingernails. This refers to pureness and cleanliness in one's actions. The person who would come into God's presence has to be walking and living in a consistent, holy way, living according to His law. Second, He must have a pure heart. The external actions are often easy enough. It's the heart that's hard to tame. And a pure heart is what's needed here. A pure heart refers to having a steadfast spirit, a soul set entirely on serving God, a soul that is never distracted, never turning to the right hand or to the left, but on the straight and narrow all the time. The person who would come into the presence of the King of Glory has to be entirely motivated by holy attitudes. His life has to be directed by a holy will. He must love only that which God loves. Next we find that He does not lift up his soul to an idol. Literally, the Hebrew says that he does not lift up his soul to vanity, to emptiness. That's just another way of expressing um, idolatry in the Old Testament. And notice again that this has to do with what goes on in the heart, in the interior life of a person. We read this and we say, well, we would never 
prostrate ourselves in prayer before the Allah of the Muslims. We would never worship Hindu gods. No. We don't have to. There are plenty of other idols that reside in our hearts. Money, material things, sex, vanity, food, alcohol, gambling, other people. So we could go on and on and on. Someone once rightly said that we are idol factories. But the person who would come into the palace of the king of glory has no such factory within him. The idol factory is idle, abandoned, shut down for good. And finally, the one who comes before Yahweh in this psalm does not swear by what is false. In other words, he loves the truth and he speaks the truth in every circumstance of life. There's no falsehood in him. The person who would come into the king's house must be a truth speaker, a truth lover. And being such a person and being welcomed into God's house, he will, ra- he will receive blessing from Yahweh. Yahweh will look upon him with favor and gift him with good things. Not only that, verse 5 also tells us that he will receive vindication or righteousness from the God who saves him. The people who seek the God of Jacob, who follow him, this is what they look like, according to David. But all of this, what we've just been hearing over these last few minutes, raises a question. When we go through the admission standards for this holy place of Yahweh, are you thinking that this is easy? That we can do this? we just try a little harder? Well, quite frankly, if you're thinking that, please think again. These standards go to what we do and think and say. They go to the externals. They address that. But more importantly, they address what lives inside of us. Who can claim to have clean hands and a pure heart? Who can claim that she doesn't have a busy little idol factory within her? Who can claim that he loves the truth consistently and that there is no falsehood in him? I can't. I don't think you can either. And surprisingly, the priests who lived during and after the days of David, they couldn't make these claims either. When I mentioned the temple and tabernacle a few moments ago, I mentioned that there was a bronze laver in the courts. This is also sometimes called the bronze basin. Essentially, it was a giant tub of water in the temple courts. In Exodus 30, we read that the priests had to wash themselves at the bronze laver before entering the holy place. And if they did not, God said that they would surely die. Even the holiest 
priest, even the most godly priest, had to wash himself. Moreover, burnt offerings also had to be made, not only for the people, but also for the priests. Without washing and without sacrifice, they could not stand in the holy place of Yahweh. They could not receive blessings and vindication. Loved ones, those washings and sacrifices, they all pointed ahead to Jesus Christ and to His redeeming work. We believe in Him. We are washed. We are cleansed with His blood. His sacrifice of atonement has been made for us. He lived a perfect life for us and in our place. And we are united to Him through faith. He is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus Christ does not lift up His soul to idols. Jesus Christ never swears by what is false. Rather, He is the truth incarnate. Looking to Him in faith, you are joined to Him, united to Him. And what is true of Him becomes true of you. As God looks at you with your faith fixed on Christ, He sees people who have clean hands and a pure heart. He sees people whose idol factories are shut down and who love the truth and never communicate with falsehood. And He opens the doors of His holy place and there's a welcome sign. In fact, He makes His holy place within you. And there you may stand. Yes, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Looking to Christ in faith, you are standing in the holy place. You will be blessed and you will receive vindication from God your Savior. And our response to all that is then also outlined here in this stanza of Psalm 24. Because we're united to Christ and because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the holy place of Yahweh, we will, we must endeavor to have clean hands and a pure heart. Because God is our Savior through Jesus Christ, the idol factory that's closed in principle must also become closed in practice in our day-to-day life. We have to wage a holy war on our idols. Because God has blessed us so richly in Christ, who is the truth, we must love the truth, confess it, and speak it with honesty and integrity. That's what the lives of believers begin to look like. The lives of those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. They begin to look like that, like that now. And when the day of their glorification arrives, they will perfectly look like that. They will stand in God's holy place in perfection. And that brings us to the last stanza, to verses 7 through 10. And here we have a glorious portrayal of God's entrance into His holy place. 
David calls out for the gates to lift up their heads, for the ancient doors to be lifted up. And this call goes out not just once, but twice. You notice it's repeated. And the repetition drives home the emphatic, the joyful character of this call. Where we would put bold, italics, underlined, 14-point font. The Hebrew poets put repetition. Lift up your heads, O you gates. This is a figure of speech where the, the gates are personified. They're called upon to give honor and praise to Yahweh. Yahweh is the King of glory waiting to come in. Now why is He called the King of glory? Well, verse 8 tells us why. Because He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. He's victorious over all His enemies. Not only does His kingdom stretch over all the earth, but there is no one who can stand up against Him. The word glory in Hebrew, kavot, the word literally means that He is weighty. It doesn't refer to physical weight, of course. It means He is weighty. He is to be taken very seriously. God is not a lightweight king. He is a mighty warrior and He has a mighty army behind Him. In verse 10, the NIV says that He is the Lord Almighty. Notice again, Lord with all capital letters. Yahweh and Almighty is Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. In our older translations, that was the Lord of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh who has mighty armies behind Him and in His service. And these words are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, He's often portrayed as the divine warrior king. Just take the book of Revelation, for instance. Revelation 1.16, John sees him as one who has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In Revelation 5, verse 5, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation 19, we see all these images come to a climax. One whose name is the Word of God. You know who that is. One whose name is the Word of God is judging with justice. And, it says in Revelation 19, He is making war. There Christ is the King of glory, King of kings and Lord of lords, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. If you want to see Yahweh, the King of glory, mighty in battle, go to the last book of the Bible. There you see it. In Jesus Christ, God has the victory over sin and death, over all the forces of evil. He's conquered the curse of sin. He is conquering the power of sin in our lives with His Word and Spirit. And not only that, but He promises to bring His victory to completion. Some of you here, 
still remember personally because you were there, you, you remember how the Second World War came to an end. Others remember because we, we read about it in books, like I do. First of all, there was a D-Day, right? A decision day. That was the day when the Allies came across the English Channel and stormed the beaches of Normandy. On that day, victory was sealed for the Allied forces in Europe. That happened on June 6, 1944. But V-Day, Victory Day, didn't come until May of 1945, almost a year later. The war had been decided on June 6, 1944. But victory wasn't a reality until the following year. And so it is with Christ and His victory. D-Day has come and gone. D-Day was Good Friday and Golgotha. But V-Day, Victory Day is coming and it will. At the last day, Christ will have the complete victory. It's guaranteed. It was decided 2,000 years ago at the cross. Yahweh is mighty in battle and always victorious. Now, what is our response to be to this? Let the text guide you. Loved ones, just soak it in. Just revel and delight in your God. Be impressed with Him and His works. He is Yahweh a mighty king of majestic glory. Think about all that he has done. Think especially about his mighty works of victory in Scripture. Think of him, the one who defeated the Midianites with a mere 300 men under the leadership of Gideon. Think of him, the one who sent a random arrow from a human perspective, it was random. Sent a random arrow into the chest of the disguised Ahab. Think of him. The one who, during the days of Elisha, struck the Arameans with blindness. So saved his people. Your God. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Your God who has crushed the head of the serpent at the cross of Jesus Christ. He is victorious for you. Now I think you can see it. No earthly royalty can compare to our God. Psalm 24 lays it clearly before our eyes once again. We serve a king who owns the world, who, miracle of miracles, allows us into his presence who is victorious in battle. There is none like Him. Let's now pray to Him. Yahweh of hosts, O King of glory, You are the one who is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. You are the one to whom everything belongs and to whom everyone owes obedience. There is none like you. 
And we thank You for this psalm, which again draws our hearts upwards in contemplation of You. Help us with Your Word to know You rightly. We thank You also for how this psalm witnesses to us about what You have done for us in Christ. Thank You for His victory over sin and death. Thank You for His holiness, His perfect obedience. Thank you that through him we can come into your presence, that you make your home with us through your Holy Spirit. Father, we deserve nothing and have received everything. Help us to recognize how richly we are blessed and to respond accordingly. Help us to love you and thank you with how we take care of your creation. Help us to love you and thank you by pursuing holiness in our deeds and our hearts and with our words. Please help us in all this with your Holy Spirit. We pray through Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.